Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, we bring you the latest on criminal justice and corrections and what the legislature managed to accomplish on property taxes. I'm Logan Finney, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, the Idaho legislature adjourned sine die for the year after 81 days in session. Later on in the show, producer Ruth Brown sat down on Thursday with representatives Greg Cheney and Colin Nash to discuss criminal justice issues, including funding for a new women's prison, judicial appointments, and execution by lethal injection. Then I'm joined by Kelly Packer with the Association of Idaho Cities to review an effort to reduce property taxes by shifting the cost of public defense and indigent medical assistance from local governments onto the state. But first, on Monday, Governor Brad Little vetoed the Coronavirus Pause Act, Senate Bill 1381, saying that it would have significantly expanded government overreach into the private sector. The bill would have limited the ability of private and public entities to require their employees to receive a coronavirus vaccination. The Senate attempted to override that veto on Thursday with a 21 to 14 vote, falling short of the necessary two-thirds majority. On Wednesday, Planned Parenthood Great Northwest filed a lawsuit against the state over an abortion bill passed by the legislature. The Texas-style law would allow the family members of a fetus to sue the abortion provider, regardless of the pregnant woman's choice to terminate their pregnancy. In the suit, Planned Parenthood claims the so-called fetal heartbeat law is unconstitutional. The Idaho Attorney General's office also issued an opinion stating a court would likely find the bill unconstitutional. And in Governor Little's transmittal letter after signing the bill, he also expressed concerns about its constitutionality. The petition from Planned Parenthood now goes to the Idaho Supreme Court. Before recessing last week, the House repeatedly shot down the budget for the Commission for Libraries, arguing largely about whether libraries are distributing obscene materials to minors. The first budget draft died on Thursday, March 24th, the second died on Friday the 25th, and the final narrowly passed later that Friday evening. Before finalizing the commission budget, the House also passed a resolution to establish a working group on protecting Idaho children from exposure to harmful materials in libraries and K-12 schools. There is material that is defined in our state code as being harmful to children, harmful to minors, that continues to be accessed in the shelves of our libraries. Is this just another bureaucratic answer. I say it absolutely is not. We have, an, we have an opportunity here to shine further light on this issue, to continue in the next 10 months, nine months, of focusing on making sure our kids are safe in the libraries, that the materials that are, are clearly illegal for them to have in their possession um, and access to in our libraries, that that, that, that problem is um, going to be fully addressed. In this resolution, we create a partnership with the Idaho Library Association and the Idaho Commission of Libraries. This is a false narrative, and I'm just going to say it. 
It's a false narrative to suggest that obscene materials are all over in our libraries. They aren't. You might be able to find one or two examples that make certain members of our communities uncomfortable, but this is a false narrative. The debates over the Commission for Libraries budget stayed heated late into Friday evening, well after the airing of last week's episode of Idaho Reports. The draft that removed all ARPA funding from the budget, including $3.5 million in technology grants for telehealth access at rural libraries, died in a 29 to 36 vote, sending the budget back to the Joint Finance Committee. So we are punishing folks because a group of people in this room is upset that Mr. librarians... Speaker, yeah, uh, point of I'm not reading. <laughs> He's making assumptions about people's Yeah, you're motives. impugning motives and... While it's late, let's stay within the lines. Go ahead. It would appear to me <laughs> that we are removing this $3.5 million from this budget because a group of people spoke up advocating for their jobs and advocating for their communities and advocating for the people that live in their town. And this issue goes so far beyond libraries. Um, what happened in this body, I think it's imperative that it be nipped in the bud. It is profoundly dangerous, one of the most dangerous things I've seen happen in this body in my time here. Um, and that was specifically going after people for exercising their sacred First Amendment right to petition their government for redress. This is one of the five basic freedoms of the First Amendment, to petition the government and approach us and say, this is why I want you to do this or not do this. I've been in this body long enough and associated with all of you long enough that you know that I am not a person who is vindictive who is unkind or who punishes people based on their viewpoints. I was clear in my debate that my objections were not to the fact that somebody disagreed, but to the fact that the information that was distributed and presented by a professional association was not accurate and that that association at that time, knowing that the information was inaccurate, did not correct the narrative or the information. That final budget draft, House Bill 827, passed the House in a 41 to 21 vote. Both Democrats and Republicans in the House held press conferences this week outlining what they consider to be the successes and failures of the session. Targeted historic investments back into, into our school system, not only in literacy, but into our into the teacher workforce, roads, bridges, water. Could talk about water for a while if you'd like, and, but then also a, a, another historic tax cut. I think those are what we'll look back on uh, uh, years from now and, you know, say 2022, that was a pretty good session. We did do some things for, for property taxes this year. We did the bill that took the judicial uh, public defenders off the roll. One of those mill levies will go away on your property taxes this year, about a $40 million relief plus because that will also alleviate the counties of their $11,000 for indigent care for every case. So if they do it right, that should also parlay into more property tax relief. We did the bill that says you can't have more than one homeowner's exemption. That will parlay into property tax relief also substantially there. And then we gave the cities the ability to also provide property tax relief. Remember, all the federal money they have, they can provide relief up to $10 million for each city without any questions asked, and they now have the ability to do that. So we did do several things around the edges on property tax relief, but there's more to do. And, and we've said it all along, it's going to be small bites so we can get to the big one. In the Democrats' press conference on Monday, leadership expressed concern about the GOP's focus this year, but highlighted what they saw as some successes. 
the Idaho GOP today in the House wants to dictate what books your kids can read, what medical care you're allowed to give your children, what women can do with their bodies, what medical care they can seek, what private businesses are allowed to invest their own money in, how private employers are allowed to make their own employment decisions, what local governments are allowed to name their own streets and parks and monuments. After five years of hard work, Representative Sally Toome saw her badly needed incentive program for teachers to go work in rural and underserved areas finally signed into law. Representative Mathias ensured that the children of service members who die in the line of duty have access to free higher education in Idaho. Representative Green passed the Dig Once bill, ensuring that broadband is installed throughout the state in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. Uh, Senator Nelson and I saw the OC we saw the OPE report describing the dire state of rural emergency medical services, and we did something about it. We passed legislation to bring funding for training and other costs associated with emergency medical services across the state. Uh, many members of our caucus, including Representative Nash, myself, Senator Ward Engelking, and others have been working for years to bring full day kindergarten to Idaho, and we were thrilled that that finally happened. On Wednesday, Governor Little vetoed a bill that would have overhauled the way the Idaho Judicial Council recommends attorneys for judgeship. The House did not attempt to override that veto. Producer Ruth Brown sat down on Thursday with Representatives Greg Cheney and Colin Nash, two members of the House Judiciary Rules and Administration Committee, to discuss that legislation and others involving state corrections. Representative Nash, Representative Cheney, thanks for joining me. Uh, today I wanted to dive into the IDOC budget and some other issues around the justice system. IDOC did have a substantial budget increase, but notably uh, there was a funding request for a new prison. It would be a little over 800 bed um, women's facility built out at the CUNA complex. Uh, Representative Cheney, you supported that legislation. Can you talk to me about um, what the new women's facility do you feel that would be uh, beneficial to IDOC? It will be, and it's uh, spending that's in a form that allows us to save money in the long term, which is important. We have a lot of one-time money that maybe we can't put into our revenue stream long term, um, but uh, we need to find a way to save money in the long term because eventually, one way or another, that money has to be paid back. So in, uh, hard infrastructure is a good way to do that, and the women's prison is a great way to save money in the long term by paying, essentially paying cash for it. We save uh, millions and millions of dollars in interest as compared to if we did bonding for it. Uh, we also save the cost of out-of-state placement. Uh, and just the savings on out-of-state placement would cover most of the cost of that prison within the next decade. And so as far as dollars and cents, it makes a lot of uh, rational sense to, to use our one-time money to build that facility to bring our out-of-state inmates back to, uh, to the, the state of Idaho, which allows them a, a better onboarding process to get back into society because their families have closer contact, their communities have closer contact. And so overall, it was uh, what I think is a, a smart move by the legislature. Sure. For listeners who may not know, um, the state of Idaho has their overcapacity with inmates, and so they do house some inmates at a private prison in Arizona. As of Tuesday, that number was 474 men that were housed out of state because there wasn't room for them at the state facility. Uh, Representative Nash, you uh, expressed some concern around women's incarceration. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I think the intent behind the prison um, is good in how can we reduce county and out-of-state placement and how can we save some of these costs. Um, my concern with it is that it's very divorced from the policy question of 
uh, are we safer being the number one incarcerator of women in America? And I think at some point, there are diminishing returns on how many people we're incarcerating um, to keep ourselves safe. And I want to have that policy conversation at the same time when we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on new prison beds. So I want to shift a little bit to, um, so IDOC is not responsible for sentencing, but judges are. So let's shift the conversation to the Judicial Council. There was a bill that would have made some amendments to uh, the Judicial Council and ways that attorneys are recommended for judgeship. Uh, the governor vetoed that this week. Um, Representative Cheney, you sponsored that bill. Can you uh, walk me through what that legislation would have done and your thoughts on the veto? Absolutely. What the legislation would have done is make sure that there was a, a broad practice area of representation among the attorney members on that commission. And it would have uh, increased the number of votes necessary to recommend the filling of a judicial vacancy so that the private sector members uh, maintained their influence on the, on the council as well. Uh, additionally, it would have provided some uh, limited transparency in revealing some of the criteria used by the council at making their recommendations to the governor, and it would have allowed the governor to essentially throw back one list of, of nominees. So the council right now is primarily responsible for discipline of, of judges, but they also send a list of two to four p uh, people to the governor whenever there's a district uh, appellate or Supreme Court vacancy for the governor to make an appointment from, and it would have allowed one slate to be be rejected fully, um, but then the second one would have still been compulsory for the governor. Uh, that was vetoed, and I, I understand the reasoning behind the governor's veto. Uh, we, it would be good to have some additional time to study and collaborate. I think that uh, we did good work. I think it's the right policy in the right direction. Uh, nonetheless, for the legislature, we, we are the least affected by this piece of legislation. Both the judiciary and the executive branches are more affected by this legislation than we are. And so where both, both of those branches are saying, well, well, slow up, I think it's important that we, we maybe slow down and we don't do something unilaterally that really doesn't affect us as a branch, uh, but affects the other two branches. Representative Nash, that uh, while that bill did pass, it was a narrow uh, vote. I know that you voted in opposition to it. What were your concerns with the Judicial Council changes? Yeah, the Judicial Council was formed 55 years ago as part of the modernization of the judiciary. Um, this is an institution that's that's kept its current form. Um, I was actually looking through legislative history on this, and my wife's great grandfather was on the committee that formed this set like so long ago. Um, it's it's really uh, speaks to uh, its enduring nature, speaks to the quality of judges that it's been able to um, recommend to the governor. And um, my concerns with this, uh, without getting into the, the substance of the bill, are more around process. Uh, if we're going to have a, uh, a once in a generation change to this institution that um, by all accounts is, is working quite well, uh, we need to have more input and um, more public input in, in this process from the other branches of government and from affected stakeholders. And I'm hopeful that the process that the Chief Justice has recommended uh, that the governor has shown an interest in participating in uh, would be the appropriate means uh, to get that input so that if we do need to make changes, which I think a lot of folks would like to see us do to help with uh, judicial recruitment, which is, remains a challenge, 
uh, that that process will um, be able to deliver on any necessary reforms. And that'll be a working group that the Supreme Court is trying to establish, correct? Mm -hmm. um, I want to move on to a more controversial bill that I would say this year created some um, real somber discussions, and that would be um, regarding lethal injections and um, where the chemicals used in lethal injection are uh, obtained. Representative Cheney, can you tell me what uh, 658, what House Bill 658 would have done? 658 uh, allows the Department of Corrections to keep anonymous the source of lethal injection drugs and the identities of those who are involved in the uh, execution protocols. It doesn't keep the, the identity of the chemical uh, or the qualifications of the people involved confidential. That's still available information. Um, and it's also available to the, um, the condemned, if you will, to independently s sample and test the chemicals so to confirm that they are of the, the nature and quality that, that they claim to be. And so there's a lot that it doesn't make anonymous, but, but these crucial pieces it does make anonymous for the purposes of avoiding um, using public pressure to effectively eliminate the death penalty. I mean, if, if the death penalty is to be eliminated, that's not something that I would support, but it should be something that goes through the ballot box and through the, the uh, legislative process, not something that is done by fiat, essentially by putting enough public pressure on uh, chemical providers or, or even those who, who might be members of, of the execution protocol team uh, to the point where it's functionally impossible. The, the department was put in an incredibly difficult position in being unable to obtain those chemicals, but still having, under Idaho statute, an obligation to carry out the, these sentences as imposed by juries across the state. Uh, Representative Nash, an issue you addressed was um, the names of those suppliers also would not be discoverable in court. The reason that we are aware of um, where the chemicals were obtained for uh, Mr. Rhodes and Mr. Levitt, the last two men in Idaho to be executed, is they came through uh, court. Uh, what, what was some of your opposition to the bill? Well, uh, one of the issues is, is that uh, um, dozens of manufacturers of these drugs, all FDA-approved uh, providers of these drugs, um, have uh, contracts in place um, that um, eliminate their ability that uh, to supply these drugs. They don't want to be a part of it. And they're, they will be unable to enforce those contracts if it's not discoverable, if they are, if they, they won't even know if they're actually supplying the drugs uh, for lethal injection at this point in the state of Idaho. And uh, I guess my bigger concern is that when we give the government the ability to take life, um, whether you consider that justified or not, um, that is an incredible power, and that needs as much sunlight on it as possible. And um, Idaho does not have a great track record with transparency when it comes to this process. I mean, the last couple executions have been shrouded in allegations of um, private chartered planes, suitcases full of cash, um, keeping two sets of books to hide those transactions. Uh, and that gives me pause. Uh, if we're going to give government the power to take life, uh, the public has a right to know everything about that process. Um, so that's where I'm coming from on my opposition to that bill. 
The governor did sign that legislation, and I know uh, Mr. Pizzuto, Gerald Pizzuto, is pending appeals. He narrowly avoided execution in June, and so we'll see how that moves forward. Um, but in the meantime, I appreciate your time, gentlemen, and hopefully you'll see Signy die soon. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for having us. Thank you. Executive Director Kelly Packer from the Association of Idaho Cities joins me now to discuss new legislation that's intended to provide property tax relief by changing the way public defense is funded in Idaho. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Logan, thank you for having me. Um, so we'll talk about public defense in a second, but stepping back, big picture to start, how did this legislative session treat the cities? You know, it was a, a, a real uphill climb for cities. To be honest, we only brought one piece of personal legislation. However, there were 62 bills that we ended up having to field in one form or another, whether we supported it or opposed them. Um, there was a lot of work that we ended up doing, but for the most part, I think that we came out um, fairly well intact. Um, we, we had a few slices um, taken off of us, but for the most part, we, we fared pretty well. And we had you on the show um, a number of weeks ago, and we talked about kind of some early proposals to use the, the tax relief fund for some different projects. Um, those, those early bills raised some concerns from the cities. Where, where have we ended up now at the end of the session? Well, you know, they still used, we were really concerned, our most, our, probably our biggest concern when I was last on was that Wayfair fund. Um, you know, trying to get those funds coming through the same distribution as we currently receive um, from just the bricks and mortar businesses. Mm -hmm. um, that is going to happen with um, a seven, the House Bill 735 as amended in the Senate. Um, it's going to happen basically at the same timeline it would have, and that's wonderful. Um, but there's some caveats um, around it. For the most part, we are happy um, because we hope to see some um, increases in revenues that will help us to be able to decrease property tax reliance mm -hmm. moving forward. And for our viewers, um, the Wayfair Fund is the, the tax relief fund is when you pay sales tax, if it's in a brick and mortar store, it goes through the distribution formula to local governments versus if you buy something online, it goes into the special bucket. Right. And so right. that um, tax relief bucket is being wound down in 2024, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And then it will go to, um, through the regular formula, which means that 11.5%, which goes to locals, will um, we'll see a little bit of an increase after the first couple of years. Right, after the first couple of years. So that gets us to the public defense bill because part of the way that the, the big public defense project is being funded is from that sales tax formula. So can you walk me through um, what changes are being made and specifically what the cities are contributing? You bet. So 735 um, was proposed in House Reven Tax um, and the cities immediately opposed it. And there was a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost is that we were not part of the conversations in drafting and, and building that legislation. And yet we were going to have major impacts to our revenue streams um, through the legislation that was being proposed. Um, 735 was going to create a funding stream for the public defense needs in the state. And we as cities recognize that that was a huge need. There's a lo current lawsuit in place, for example. And we believe that all of us from the state through the counties to the cities should partner together and be good partners. We just did not believe it should come out of the 11.5% local piece that the um, counties and cities currently use to help offset property tax needs. Um, but that's where the state insisted it come out of. Um, initially, they were gonna have the cities pay 50% of the freight. 
We definitely oppose that because we don't provide 50% of the footprint um, for the cost. Right, those indigent services for poor and needy people, for whether or it's public defense, medical or one. public defense, that largely comes at the county level. Absolutely, and in fact, constitutionally and statutorily, it's the state and the county's responsibility for the public defense needs and, and so not cities. In your conversation with lawmakers, why did they choose to, to have you guys also pay into that? Um, they didn't want it coming out of their state funds. Plain and simple, they did not want it coming out of the general funds because there were there were already fed, there were already excuse me other state priorities um, that were going to be used for the um, from the surplus and and other revenues that they had at the general fund level. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so like we said, a lot of the the indigent services, whether it's medical or public defense, um, these are levied at the county level. So. With this shift, what are the cities going to see in exchange for what you're paying into this new program? Really nothing, to be honest, other than maybe a healthier public defense system, but that's yet to be seen because they decided to pass a piece of legislation um, funding a public defense system that doesn't really exist. They don't know what it's gonna look like yet. Um, so basically we're gonna pay $16 million um, from the city level um, to help fund the public defense system without even knowing if that's how much it's gonna cost, right? Um, or what it's going to look like. And, and we think that's somewhat problematic. We also weren't thrilled with um, having to pay the 16 million because as I mentioned, they're not currently our responsibility, but they had done, the bill sponsors had done some research and they said that 38% of city violations that were written um, by city law enforcement actually hit the public defense system. Um, we did our own research and showed that while that number was accurate and true, 93.43% of those violations were actual enforcement for state and county laws. Um, so they weren't even city in code enforcement needs. It's so the city carrying out what the state and counties require. Right, but we are still going to pick up 38% of the, the expense um, because we wanted to be good partners in, in the need that our state has. So. And then another piece of legislation that was passed into law this year also gives cities the ability to issue property tax rebates, kind of in the same style as the uh, income tax rebates that the legislature has done. Um, do you know, are many cities planning to take advantage of that provision? To be honest, Logan, not very many of the cities are gonna have the abil ability to do that. Um, Why is that? Um, I know that some legislators think that um, cities are rich with money right now because of ARPA funds and now the Investment Act funds that are going to be coming their way. But there's already a huge overwhelming need for those funds to be used for streets, water, sewer. We have a lot of aging infrastructure in our state that the cities are responsible for and those monies are going to be used for that. Um, for example, um, an, an average water or sewer project cost $16 million, $16.1 million. And there's only two cities in our all of our 199 that got that or more. Um, the majority of them maybe got a million or less. Some of them only got a couple hundred thousand. So for legislators that, to think that the funds that are coming to the cities um, is going to create a situation where they're going to just have excess cash laying around is really a misnomer, it's just not true. And then looking forward, now that we've reached Tiny Die, uh, with redistricting that has happened, there's going to be a whole bunch of turnover in the legislature. Um, with this public defense bill, they set up a funding mechanism, but not necessarily the public defense system. That's on the upcoming legislature to figure out. So 
What should the next batch of lawmakers prepare to address next year from the city's perspective? I think that needs to be the number one priority. And I would hope that even the existing ones, whether they're coming back or not, would work in the interim to, to meet that, that need. Um, as I mentioned, we passed legislation. In fact, I asked that in testimony. Why are we passing a funding stream for something that doesn't exist, for something we don't even know what it's going to look like? Um, and so my, my suggestion is that that becomes the number one priority for the legislators coming back, is that they figure out that system and get it done. All right, Kelly Packer with the Association of Idaho Cities, thank you so much. We have much more online at the Idaho Reports blog. For that and more, check out Idaho Reports online at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.